This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And today, we're going to talk about the flu. We've done a lot of talk over the last 19 months on COVID, but today we really want to focus on the flu. And we're delighted that we've got Dr. Cesar Termolo, who's the Associate Medical Director at Parkland Health and Hospital System, with us again. Thank you, Dr. Termolo, for being with us. Thank you, and it's always a pleasure to be speaking with you, Mr. Love. You know, as we look at flu and flu season, what would you say generally is when flu activity begins, and when does it usually peak and then end? It usually begins somewhere around October or November. It, it always varies every year. It usually peaks around December, January, February, around then. Um, and then it usually ends around March and April. Oftentimes what we do uh, is based on when it's flu season or not, for instance, when to give the flu shot. And oftentimes, since it is a moving target, Sometimes we rely on infectious disease specialists. Lots of times we rely on, uh, uh, as a pediatrician, we rely a lot on children's hospitals to tell us when the flu season is over or Dallas County Health Department. But in general, it's uh, October, November is when it starts and March or April when it ends. So in your opinion, influenza, the flu, how serious is it? There's a wider way uh, that it can present. There could be a spectrum of disease as simple as a fever and a cough, and oftentimes the fever can be low-grade, but usually when I see a patient with a flu, it's a very high fever, uh, at least more than 101.0, with usually a cough, um, body aches, and chills. That's actually kind of the lower end of how it can present. It can even be more serious. Patients can present with an asthma attack, they can present with a pneumonia. Uh, they can present with an exacerbation of their chronic disease. Uh, and unfortunately, it can even lead up, in t- up until death. So uh, there's a wide spectrum of disease that the influenza disease can present itself. If a patient has the flu, could they potentially have COVID-19 at the same time? There's gathering evidence that it can happen. Um, flu and COVID has been shown to coexist. Uh, we, we saw a lot of COVID and RSV, which is a, an infection in children this summer. It's only been a handful of cases, but we, we do know that it can exist. And we also know that it's been shown to be more serious when they do coexist. From people that are exposed to the flu, how long do, does it take for the symptoms to appear after they've been exposed to the flu? Usually it's about two to three days for exposure. They, they can develop symptoms, but you know, it can occur very quickly as well, uh, more quicker than that. It just depends on the amount of viral load that the person receives and also their, their immune response to the infection that they get. Who would you say is very high risk? The groups that are highest risk for flu are the very young and the very old. For the very young children, younger than five, especially those younger than two, adults 
uh, age 65 and older, uh, and also those with chronic medical conditions such as asthma, uh, neurologic disorders, sickle cell disease, chronic lung disease, uh, those who are immunosuppressed, patients with diabetes and heart disease. So in general, it's the young, the old, and those with chronic medical conditions. You know, many people get annual flu shots. Should infants and small children get flu shots? I definitely believe that infants and young children should get the flu shot. Those who are less than two are are especially susceptible to the flu with serious complications. We can only give the flu shot for infants greater than six months of age, but after that, I definitely believe that they should receive the flu shot. If you get the flu shot, could it actually give you the flu? So most people say that. They usually say that I won't get my flu shot because I got the flu. But that's based on a misconception because oftentimes the misconception about what the flu is is the misperception that a runny nose and a cough is the flu. But really, a cough and a runny nose is not the flu. Uh, if You might have allergy to Bermuda grass and get a runny nose and a cough. And I have patients that come into the office and say, I got the flu because I went outside, I cut the grass, and I got the flu. That's not true. The real flu is present with those symptoms that I mentioned, high fever, cough, body aches, chills, and the like. So when those patients get the flu shot and they say they got the flu, it's usually that they said they got the flu shot and then afterwards they might have gotten, very likely could be coincidentally, have gotten a runny nose and a cough and they think that's the flu. But in reality, 99 cases out of 100, that wasn't the flu. It was just a runny nose and a cough and a virus or an allergy, but it wasn't the flu. So I I do not believe that the flu shot can give you the real influenza. You know, if a patient uh, appears and they're exhibiting symptoms, we know that the flu symptoms and COVID-19 are similar. Is there a test you can give to detect the flu virus? I can tell you that at Parkland... We are currently using a combination test, which tests flu and COVID at the same time. So with the same swab and the same test, and most of us already know what that test is. You stick up a a swab up your nose and it's not very comfortable. But with that same one test, we're testing for flu and for COVID. So ever since uh, October 1st, we started using that test. You know, you mentioned COVID and flu. So if you go to get your flu shot, can you get your flu shot and the COVID vaccine at the same time? Yeah, the the CDC, we're we're very thankful that the CDC has given us a lot of direction based on the evidence that we have. And they have given us direction that, yes, we can give COVID and the flu and other vaccines at the same time. So they can be co-administered. So for people that are, say, age 65 and older, do they get a different type of flu shot than younger people? Uh, in, in general, the, the dose for the really small ones, like the infants and the toddlers, they're um, basically the same, but it's a lower amount. So basically it's the same material, but it's a lower amount. But it does also depend on the brand of flu shot because there's a lot of different kinds of flu shots. But depending on the brand, it could be the same. But in general, 
in most brands, it's just a smaller amount for the uh, smaller children. This is Dr. Cesar Termulo from Parkland Health and Hospital System, pediatrician, specializes in respiratory disease. When we come back, a gripping and tragic story where the flu hits Dr. Termulo's family directly. But she was actually up and she was getting getting ready to, to go to school. I said, um, no, I, I think you should, uh, you, you should stay home. Um, and, you know, I said, Reese, just you, I, I, this is the last thing I ever said there is, Reese, I think you're going to get, be- get better. Just, just pray that you'll get better. Hear firsthand why this message is so important to Dr. Termulo and his family when we come back next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Cesar Termulo, pediatrician with Parkland Health and Hospital System, continuing our conversation about the flu. Two years ago, this hit very hard in Dr. Termulo's family. Tragically, in 2019, your daughter passed away from the flu, even though she had a flu shot. Can you tell us about her? Yeah, um, let, yeah, let me tell you about her. So she was um, my firstborn child. She had absolutely no pre-existing medical conditions. She she didn't have asthma. She didn't have. Uh, she barely even had an ear infection. Um, uh, she was very healthy. Uh, she was on the dance team. She was on track to be like an officer on the Bishop Lynch. A drill team. Um, she was in multiple honor societies. Uh, she was in the top 10% of her class, so she was on track to go to uh, a lot of different colleges. And we had just finished visiting uh, Texas A&M um, as a potential place to visit, or Notre Dame, which is where I went. I, I would have been happy if she went to one of those colleges. So she, I mean, she had a bright future ahead of her, uh, and and she got the flu shot. She got the flu shot. She she got a little bit late. Uh, because she was so busy with her studies, we, we couldn't get it to her until her uh, Christmas break. Um, but in January 10th of 2020, um, or actually January 9th of 2020, and I can tell you that it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, um, the nurse's office called my wife that she had a fever. And immediately when my wife relayed that to me, immediately I, I thought, well, she might have the flu. So we brought her to my office, and and, and I knew she had the flu shot, but we brought her to my office. We had her tested for the flu and also strep. Um, Her her strep test was negative, but she she had the flu. She had flu B, and she had the same flu that all of my other patients had. And so we did what we're supposed to do, and we put her immediately on um, Tamiflu. She got her medications, and uh, I, I checked on her at 11 o'clock at night and you know she was doing what every other teenager does she was uh, she was looking at her snapchat and she was texting people and she had done her homework I told her to go to bed uh, I checked her on her the next morning and you know she didn't even she wasn't even as sick as my other patients with the flu because she wasn't having a round-the-clock fever uh, I checked her in the morning and she she didn't have any fever uh, she just said she was uh, in some pain, and I examined her, and I checked her lungs, and and you know, you know, she wasn't like all my other patients who were basically uh, lying on the floor saying that you know they were gonna die. 
um, with the flu. They looked very bad, but she was actually up and she was getting getting ready to, to go to school. I said, um, no, I, I think you should, uh, you should stay home. Um, and, you know, I said, Reese, just you, I, I, this is the last thing I ever said to her is, Reese, I think you're going to get, be- get better. Just just pray that you'll get better. Um, and I uh, got a phone call, ironically, at, no, at 11 o'clock. And this is just a little bit only 24 hours after she first developed the fever. Um, I just got a, a frantic call from my wife that she had called. My wife had called 911 because Reese had stopped breathing. And so she had called 911, and the EMS was on the site, and her heart stopped beating. And it was tragic knowing that it was basically 10 o'clock that she was still able to go take a shower. Uh, she got up, and she was still working on her homework. She went up. She went to take a shower. She went back to bed. Uh, my wife had, at 10 o'clock, had gone down to make her something to eat, and she went. She had gone upstairs, and she... Um, when she got upstairs, Reese was passed out. Um, so it was only 24 hours she went to having her first fever until she had she had passed away, less than 24 hours with the flu, and we had her diagnosis. She had the flu shot, and she was taking medication. And that's how serious and dangerous the flu can be. Thank you for sharing that story with us. Thomas and I certainly express our condolences. Why do you advocate the way you do related to flu shots after this tragedy in your family? You know, a lot, a lot of people ask me, so doesn't that just show that the flu shot doesn't work? Why should you even get the flu shot? So the thing is, I, I know that with the flu, there's, there's over 200 subtypes or subclasses of the flu. Um, people know that there's a flu A and a flu B. And the thing is, is that in the flu shot, we can only put three different subtypes in the flu shot. Well, in 2019, 2020, in that winter, the predominant flu type was the flu B Victoria, which was not covered in the flu shot. And that was a, a more more dangerous uh, flu. Flu B is more dangerous. And unfortunately, that is the one that caused her to pass away. So I, I know that it's just a statistic that there might be a flu that circulates that isn't covering the flu shot, but unfortunately it became a uh, the most horrific tragedy in my life. So a lot of people then ask me, so then why why do you advocate for the flu shot? I, even if it doesn't, you know, you can kind of see why it might not work, but why do you still say you, sh- you should take the flu shot? And I, what, what I say to that is, well, would you get on 35, would you drive on 35 and not wear a seatbelt? Okay, it's, it's the same logic. Seatbelts, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation, seatbelts save 90% of lives in a car accident. So 15,000 lives are saved with a seatbelt. But there are 2,000 lives who succumb to an accident uh, wearing a seatbelt. You know, you might hit an embankment or high-speed accident or for whatever reason, even if you wear a seatbelt, you might, you might die. Seatbelts are not 100%. And the same thing with the flu. Um, the flu, according to studies, can save the life of uh, over 60-70% of, of potential deaths. And, and like I said, the statistic doesn't put a face on, on the, the, the personal tragedy, but that's what happened. That's what happened to me. So I think that everyone should get the flu shot. It's not 100% effective, but 
it still saves many lives. And it could, for those listening, it could save many of your lives if you get the flu shot. Thank you so much for sharing that advocacy with us. I'm going to pivot a little bit and I have a question. If someone has tested positive for COVID-19, should they still at that time get a flu shot? Uh, Yes, I believe that one should. As I mentioned before, you can't get the flu and you can't get COVID at the same time. There have not been any proven side effects from getting the flu shot after getting COVID. Uh, Interestingly enough, there is one study out there that shows that if you get the flu shot, you actually have less chance of getting the COVID. So it's, it's kind of like an indirect way of helping you not get COVID. So I do believe that you should get the flu shot even if you have gotten COVID. You know, I know there's probably no scientific evidence on this, but the fact that we were so diligent wearing masks last year, do you think that had an impact on the flu season? I really do think so. Um, And there have been uh, many studies that show that masking was effective, um, even though it was, you know, to prevent COVID, that it did make the flu season a lot Uh, It minimized the amount of food that we had last year. Uh, So I really do think that that masks did make a big difference uh, in the amount of food that we had last year. So I really, really believe that. But I do have one caveat that there's a lot of things since COVID happened that we really don't understand, um, such as RSV. Um, RSV, which we always only see in the wintertime, now we're seeing in the summer. Um, COVID has just made everything kind of topsy-turvy. So I, and I say that mainly because I don't know what's, what's, what's going to happen this flu season. Uh, so I still want to recommend that even if you mask, you still get a flu shot. Um, it's not going to prevent all cases of flu uh, if you wear a mask. So I really think that masking did help the flu and the amount of flu that happened. But as in all things, we never know anything 100%. What makes one flu year worse than another? We always hear that. I think what makes things worse would be a lot of different reasons. Um, that 2019-2020 season, um, which is when my daughter passed away, um, it was it was 200 uh, deaths that year, um, pediatric deaths. And so to me, what kind of makes one think it's it's a worse year is just when you look at the data um, in terms of what's been going on. And, you know, I, I realized that, you know, my daughter is, is one, but there was, there was also 200 that occurred that year of pediatric deaths. Um, so I, I think the thing that makes one think about what's when it's worse is just by, by trying to look at the Dallas County website, the Texas Department of State Health Services website, or the CDC to kind of know what's going on to see what the trend is. Dr. Cesar Termulo, Parkland Health and Hospital System, and to the Termulo family, again, our deepest condolences, but thank you for sharing a very important message. His daughter's name was Reese, and every flu season, it would be really good just to remember that precious girl and in her memory realize that the flu is another killer virus among us. Now, when we come back, we're heading to Fort Worth to find out how Dr. Claudia Perez became a neurointensivist after immigrating when she was five and growing up in Garland. That's next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare 
where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the Human Side of Healthcare. Glad you're with us today. We want to talk a little bit about motivation to pursue a medical career. We're delighted that we've got with us Dr. Claudia Perez, a neurointensivist at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. Dr. Perez, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Perez, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey into the medical field. Okay, so I um, actually was born in Guatemala, but I uh, immigrated here at five years old and grew up in Garland. So that's one of the suburbs here in Dallas. I ended up um, going to UT Dallas, where I received my neuroscience uh, and bachelor's and master's degree. Ended up going down to UTMB in Galveston to get my medical degree and actually um, came back home to finish my neurology residency and neurocritical care fellowship here at UT Southwestern. And uh, for the past four years um, after graduating, joined a hospital-based group uh, here in uh, downtown Fort Worth. So I'm at Harris Methodist Hospital in downtown Fort Worth. Was there any particular event or anything in your life that kind of made you pursue the medical field? So I don't think that I, you know, a lot of people say, uh, you know, they knew that they wanted to be a doctor ever since they were, um, you know, a kid. I actually didn't know that I wanted to become a physician until later, uh, whenever I ended up uh, facing a medical illness that actually um, led me to see kind of what a physician was and what the role of physician could be. I was pregnant and had a medical illness. So if anything, you turned a negative into a positive. Would that be a fair assessment? What ended up happening is, you know, at that time I was a teenager, still um, actually had dropped out of high school and uh, was just working at the time and um, got pregnant, um, didn't know that I had um, hyperthyroidism. So I was, um, you know, pretty sick, didn't realize that I was sick and then ended up pregnant. And then um, my daughter was actually born prematurely. And so at that time, Having to go through that, realizing that um, I didn't know how sick I was and how much it impacted my daughter, that I realized there was so much I didn't know. Um, And at that time, since I had um, not finished my degree, I had not finished high school, it really took me back to having to go back to school and kind of pursuing higher education as a way to kind of make sure that I was more informed, not only for myself, but for my daughter. You know, that's a great background and and really tells us one of the reasons you became a physician. You know, as you look at many individuals that enter the medical field, they have many multiple reasons. Would you say there are any other reasons you entered the medical field? Yeah, I think growing up, I always felt that there was this lack of, you know, communication that sometimes can happen uh, between physicians and uh, patients. And so I think that 
through my illness, I actually was lucky that um, the physician who actually took care of the condition that I had, uh, this thyroid disorder, um, really took it upon themselves to really educate me more about my condition. Um, growing up, um, you know, I saw a lot of the time whenever I would, you know, go with my grandmother to the doctor that there was always this barrier in communication, sometimes, you know, more language, but sometimes educational between how physicians and patients kind of interact and, you know, feeling this need to fill that void of simplifying the communication and improving that communication was another thing that I discovered. The more I knew about science, the more I knew about medicine, the more I realized that there was so much we needed to teach. Excellent advice and and, and very good reasons. I'm going to pivot just a little bit, Dr. Perez. When we look at the field of medicine, we all know, and we want to explain to our listeners it's evident there's room for improvement when it comes to diversity. Just to put this somewhat in context, the Association of American Medical Colleges said that there are approximately 5.8% of physicians in the United States that are Hispanic. In your viewpoint, what can we, as people that are educators, parents, students, anyone to help diversify the field of medicine, whether it be race or gender. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that this is a very complex issue, and we have to think about it, I think, at different levels. If you think about it from a bottom-up type of approach, the question is, you know, as a parent, as an early educator, you know, how can we have Um, that motivation for kids or programs for children um, and identify this interest and early outreach for, for like science and math. And so one of the things that I saw, you know, that was different from whenever I was growing up and actually seeing my daughter go through different programs was the development of STEM programs. So early outreach at the high school or middle school level where there's this focus on, and STEM is, science, technology, engineering, and math. And so having those magnet programs to identify children who have that early interest and set up an early pathway for them and making sure that, you know, these uh, programs are available for all students. So the other thing to consider is just that sometimes these programs may be confined to certain areas, certain geographic areas that don't make them accessible to others. So how can we as parents make sure that we know that those resources are there and are encourage students to be in those programs and I think more also ensure that they are equitably distributed throughout the districts. I think other things that, that are helpful is having mentorship. So mentorship at the high school level, at the undergrad level, and, um, you know, when students actually matriculate into medicine, into medical school. So I know that this has been one of the initiatives of the AMC and our institutional initiatives to really try to encourage diversity, to make sure that we are recruiting, you know, diverse students and also ensuring that once the students are there, that there are mentorship programs. So one of the things that um, I didn't have growing up you know, I had mentioned that I grew up in Garland was really a pathway to medicine. 
And then this also exists in medical school. Sometimes if you come from, you know, an underrepresented minority, you may not be facing the same challenges that other students are. And so having that specific mentoring to really help see yourself as that professional who you're going to become and have somebody be able to mentor you as far as um, maybe hardships that you're facing that others in your school aren't. And so I really think it's kind of identifying the gaps that we have across the spectrum. You know, being a practicing physician, looking through the lens of your eyes, what do you think are qualities of a good patient and also what are qualities of a good physician? So I think that it's really hard to think of the ideal patient or the ideal doctor, but more trying to create ideal situations whenever maybe somebody's having a bad day. And so all this comes back to really emphasizing on having good communication between patients and physicians, you know, making sure that as a physician, you're ready to kind of hear your patients hear where they're coming from, try to understand what circumstances may be limiting them um, so that they can in turn be heard and open to receive the advice that you're giving them. Because at the end of the day, as a physician, you don't necessarily want to make your patients do things. You want your patients to do things because you gave them medical advice and they feel that that is something that they need to implement into their life to improve their own lives. And so I think, you know, from the physician side is having that notion of trying to understand what your patient is, trying to understand what their circumstances are. And I think from the patient side, kind of understanding that the physician role is there to inform you, to help guide you as you're going through different transitions and your medical care. To our listeners out there, maybe they're high schoolers, undecided college freshmen, or frankly, anyone for that matter, what advice could you give them about pursuing a career in the medical field? So I think for anybody who is kind of at that early stage of considering medicine, one of the main things that I would suggest to them is that they learn Uh, If they have any opportunity to shadow a doctor, um, to get into even a clinic that may provide care, like free care clinics, to really try to expose themselves more to understanding what the medical field is about. Um, Because I will say it is a long journey um, to get through to medical school, um, to get through you know, all the training that we do, but it is a very rewarding career. So one is taking those experiences to make sure this is definitely something you want to do. And so exposure is important, finding mentors, finding programs that may encourage this. Um, Being in medicine is a lifetime uh, commitment. Um, It's always knowing that you're going to have to continue to learn through the whole scope of your career. And so, um, really just kind of understanding and getting that mentorship. Medicine is definitely a craft that is passed from one generation to the next. Claudia Perez, neurointensivist at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. When we come back, we're going to talk to John Drake about a very important veterans program at Baylor Scott & White, next on the Human Side of Healthcare. 
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And today we want to talk about some of the good work that hospitals are doing, and particularly Baylor Scott and White Irving, related to helping our veterans. And we're delighted we've got John Drake with us. John is the president of the foundation at Baylor Scott and White Irving. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Steve. You know, Baylor Scott and White has got a unique initiative they've developed to help veterans. Can you tell our listeners about that initiative? It would be my privilege uh, to tell you about what we are doing to honor those who have served our country and now serve in our communities. Um, it's it's one of the reasons I'm really proud to work for Baylor Scott and White Health. I, I'm going on 35 years with this system, and I really appreciate um, all it does, but this is, this is special to me. It, it actually honors what we're doing is a fund that we've created to honor uh, Richard Dick Brooks, who served on the system's board of trustees for 30 years. And it was his lifelong endeavor to honor the women and men who had served our country. So in turn, to honor Mr. Brooks, uh, the four foundations throughout Texas uh, have come together and collaboratively we've created a fund that will help veterans by providing additional uh, tuition reimbursement uh, for their degree work. We, we, Baylor Scott White has tuition reimbursement, but this will be an additional fund available only to veterans uh, to help them as they advance their careers in healthcare and uh, perhaps work on fast tracking towards that next degree that's important to them in their career growth. You know, you mentioned that, and I was thinking in terms of the Baylor Scott and White system, how many veterans work at Baylor Scott and White? You know, of our 40,000 employees, uh, more than 2,100 are military and veteran employees. And so they are part of us, the Baylor Scott and White being the largest not-for-profit donor-supported health system in Texas. And we actually have several facilities located near Fort Hood and some of the other military installations in our state. So we really are committed to creating a culture uh, that values and welcomes these highly trained, dedicated team members. Um, so th- th- of those, tw- those 20 to 100 uh, are special to all of us. In fact, uh, Baylor Scott & White uh, uh, Victory, which is a military marketing or- organization that helps people as they transition to civilian work, uh, named Baylor Scott & White in 2021 a top military-friendly employer designation. And we were the only health system in Texas to be ranked in the top 10. So we're really proud of that. And also we were number four in another uh, non- government non- nonprofit organization category. And, and we were recognized for exceeding benchmark standards for military-friendly designation. So th- those are important to us um, as a system. And if anybody wants an uh, example of real-life heroes, all you do is talk to those people who served in the military. They, I wish they could be on this call because they, they can tell the story about why they serve. They've served their country, and now they're in communities throughout Texas helping to carry on the Baylor Scott and White mission. And so we, they bring amazing skills, and that's why we value them so highly. Are there certain particular jobs they like or specific areas they work, or do you employ veterans across your organization? They're in every aspect 
of uh, what we do at the bedside, but also uh, administratively supporting throughout. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Uh, my friend Gino Rubio, he's a Marine Corps vet. He is our facility safety manager and safety officer here in Irving. And, and similarly, Matt Burrill is an Air Force veteran. He's our HR manager. But we've got folks like Ed Kelsey, who's an Army veteran as a practice administrator. But on the clinical side, you've got Don Hale, supervisor of clinical operations, an Army veteran. Um, Quentin Murrell is a monitor tech. He's an Air Force reservist. And then my, my friend uh, in uh, public relations, Matt Olivolo, he's a Marine Corps veteran. And I was talking with him the other day, and he said that a career in healthcare makes him feel like he's serving the community in a different capacity. Uh, many veterans, Matt included, they just have a servant's heart and they work um, in healing through healthcare. And they, there's a camaraderie that comes from that. Uh, healthcare, you know, impacts everybody and it's a, it's a human connection. And Matt told me, he said that really rings true for him as a veteran and, uh, and he thinks that's true of so many others. The other story I would just briefly add is about Dr. Dan Meyer. He is a heart transplant surgeon on our medical staff but he's also in the U.S. Naval Reserves uh, as their oldest recruit. Uh, for nearly three decades, he was chief of cardiac transplantation and at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, and he's provided life-saving care for patients. But at the young age of 63, he decided to answer another call, a strong personal mission to help his country. Now he's a lieutenant commander, commander in the U.S. Navy uh, Reserve Medical Corps, and he graduated from Officer Development School and he's literally following his heart to provide specialized expertise to communities in need. So really proud of all those folks. You know, John, I can just tell by your answers how passionate you are about the program. And you mentioned the Dick Brooks Servicemen and Servicewomen Continuing Education Fund. And can you first explain to our listeners what that fund is and how do veterans take advantage of the funds that are available through that particular educational fund? Absolutely. The, the work uh, that we do extends beyond just the hiring of veterans. Uh, through this fund, Baylor Scott & White supports veteran employees by offering scholarships for continuing education opportunities that help prepare them for a successful career as a civilian uh, and, and as they work with us. It, it relieves financial stress for these folks uh, because it, you know, they're facing tuition and fees and educational supplies, books and equipment, all those things that come along with getting a degree. And, and it, it relieves, relieves that stress and empowers them to pursue uh, educational endeavors. And, and as I said before, Baylor Scott and White has tuition reimbursement. So this is additional funding on top of that. I'm real, and it's just available to veterans. I'm really, really proud of that. And it extends beyond to the, the GI Bill or Hazelwood program benefits that these folks may have already exhausted. So it's additional dollars to help take them further educationally. You know, this program and this fund sounds remarkable. How is it funded? Well, I'm, I told you how proud I am of my system, and they set aside, to honor Mr. Brooks, they set aside $25,000 as the initial funding. But then the four foundations, and there's one in Irving, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Temple, we're all collaborating and asking the, our communities to also add funds so that these veterans, now our colleagues, can apply for these funds, and they just simply apply through, there's a, a protocol for, through our HR 
department to, to be able to provide those funds. We're excited because we're actually going to have dollars that go out the door for the spring 22 semester. The, the, that 25000 anything we raise here um, around Veterans Day and throughout the end of the year will be available to help these folks. And we hope those dollars go fast. I look forward to telling the donors the, the, here at the Irving Foundation exactly how we spend those, those funds, who, who benefited, and, and get some notes of gratitude from those vets out to our donors. Uh, really, really excited about that process. But, but we're creating a really simple process for them to be able to uh, apply for these funds, get those funds, and put them to use. So, John, we talked about how you employ veterans. As you well know, and many of our listeners know, Hospitals are blessed that we have so many kind people in the community that serve as volunteers. Do you have service people and veterans that may not be employed, but they still serve you as a volunteer? Of course. And, and it's been hard on the hospital because during the pandemic, many of our volunteers, to keep them safe, we haven't had them in the hospital. But slowly, uh, they're coming back. And, and out of that, there's a richness of experience, uh, both from the work world, but the military uh, as well. So those volunteers who may, they may do everything from greeting people at the front desk or rocking babies in the nursery or uh, helping folks uh, in the emergency departments or those people in our surgical waiting areas, you're going to find the equity from both the military and the work world uh, in in our volunteer corps. And that's uh, at our facilities, the 50 hospitals we have around Texas, you're going to find those very appreciated volunteers. And we'll always love it when we have those military folks who, who find value in sharing their most valuable asset, their time with us. And if you'd like more information on what we've been talking about, you can go to Baylor Scott and White's website, bswhealth.com forward slash support veterans. We've been listening to John Drake, president of the Baylor Scott and White Irving Foundation. Steve? Hey, what a great show. We've really appreciated you being here. In the meantime, please stay safe, wear a mask, physical distance, wash your hands, get that flu shot. We want to keep you good and safe so you'll join us next week.